0: The year, 2022, was an exceedingly difficult time for my wife and I. There were a number of health concerns that the Lord, in His gracious sovereignty, chose to bring us through. We had something like five ER admissions, sometimes with waits over 20 hours while one was in pain, sometimes going into one ER, seeing the long wait, and traveling across town to another hospital where the ER was shorter. We probably saw easily over 40 doctors. May spent something like three months in hospitals. We drove easily over 3,000 miles back and forth from hospital to hospital. And as a husband and as a father, as a caregiver, though I was not the one suffering in the hospital, I closely felt what my wife was going through. In fact, one writer that I read said this. Sometimes it's harder to see someone we love suffer than it would be to suffer ourselves. And during this time, besides the prayers and encouragement of many of the saints <coughs> here today, reminded me that I was not alone. It was the psalms that I turned to again and again and again. In particular, virtually every morning I would read Psalm 46 or Psalm 77. These psalms were the bedrock and, and They comprise the grace of God through which the Lord supplied endurance to me. Sometimes in our struggles with trusting God, the issue can become more about God than just the trial itself. Or to put it another way, you and I can become confused with God and what he's doing because God does not seem to match our understanding of who he is. God does not seem to make sense. We know God loves us, but then why, if he loves us, has he allowed this particular thing to happen? I know the promise that his mercies are new every morning, but what if this morning seems worse than yesterday? Through suffering, you and I can come to a better understanding of who God is, or we can adopt an incorrect understanding of God and become bitter and hardened there's one lens more than anything else that affects us to how we respond to life's struggles. And that lens is our view of who God is, or our understanding of who God is. You see, our understanding of God affects what we do, how we view ourselves and our circumstances. It affects how we live our life. It affects why and what we do. It gives realism to who we are, and it gives hope in the midst of trials. But the difficulty is that our view of God is so often shaped by things other than Scripture. Oftentimes, I see it's shaped by who our earthly father is. That affects how we view God. It can be shaped by the world around us. It can be shaped by incorrect understanding of Scripture. It can be shaped by our circumstances and trials. Even our view of God can be shaped by having a relatively pain-free life and expectation that life is pretty good. And then you get into a trial, and it shatters that. You see, there are many incorrect concepts of God, but you and I need to hold all of God's attributes in balance and not swing the pendulum to one side or the other, as so many popular books do. In order to correct one side, they swing the pendulum to the other side. But the question is, what is our view of God in the midst of suffering? Even further, how can suffering help you and I to adopt a clearer understanding of God? Now all. Of all the experiences in life, suffering has perhaps the greatest opportunity to change our focus. Suffering has the preeminent ability to cause us to draw closer to God and love him more. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You know, it's been pointed out that all of us here in this room fall into one of three categories. You're either going into a trial, you're in the midst of a trial, or you're going out of a trial. That's through the lens of a trial, the one way you and I might view the Christian life. Now if you're going into a trial, you might fear, what will God do next? We might fear the future. If you're in a trial, you wonder, will God help you, or how he will help you? And if you're coming out of a trial, you might even fear, will the trial come again? So what should you do? What should you and I do when we're in the midst of a trial and God seems silent? What should we do when all our efforts to plead with God results in God not being found? You see, the believer's greatest struggle in trials frequently is with God himself. God himself. I'll say this again, but in a different way. For a believer, frequently our greatest struggle is with God, our understanding of God, not the trial itself. Listen to these possibilities. Though the trial may be fearful and painful, the fear of how long God may permit the trial may be greater than the trial itself. You and I may believe that God is sovereign, but what if I fear in his sovereignty he will bring another trial greater than the last? I just finished a book by Georgie Vince, who is a Russian pastor who was incarcerated in many Russian prison camps, and in one place he talks about freedom, and he asks, freedom from what? He says, if I get released, then would I live under the constant fear of being arrested again? And you can read this in many, Voice of the Martyrs, many stories. That's a a fear. You go out from one, and then you have to fear another one. You know, even here, Robert Morgan, a pastor, says, I hope never again to encounter such fear. Again, God can help you in one, but what, what is the next one going to be like? We may believe God hears our prayers, but why is God silent now? I believe God will never give us more than we can handle, but I just can't handle this. You know, it's more than I expected. Does God understand? And the questions can go on and on and on. You see, our greatest problem is a correct understanding of who our God is and our willingness to walk by faith. You say, Paul, how can I develop an understanding of God, and how can I walk by faith when everything around me doesn't seem to make sense? Well, that's exactly where we find ourselves today in Psalm 77. The psalmist was in the midst of a trial, but the psalmist's struggle was not so much the trial itself, but an under his understanding of God. You see, we think we understand God, but a trial comes, and God designs a trial to alter our understanding of him so that we can trust him more. We think we understand the sovereignty of God, and you may know all the doctrines of of systematic theology and historical theology, but when a trial comes, do you accept the sovereignty of God? Those are two different things. You might know Romans 8.28 by heart, God works all things together for good, but when you're in the midst of a trial, do you accept that? that that's an important question. It, it, it's a very important question. All too often a correct understanding of God comes about by shattering our our preconceived understandings. And so as we come to Psalm 77, I just want to explain to you the forest and the trees. So the big picture is this. <coughs> Excuse me, the big picture is this. Psalms, this psalm has two parts. Part one, where Asaph sees the lens of God through his circum- through his circumstances. Part two is from ten verses ten to twenty where he sees his circumstances through the lens of who God is. So let me give it let me make it even shorter. Part one is about me, myself, and I. Part two is about God himself and God's power. I'll make it shorter. Part one is about me, part two is about God. That's the big picture. And I'm gonna try to fit all those things under that picture and and have you understand what this means for you and I. Let's read the first half of the psalm. And excuse me, I'm reading from the New American Standard. It's very close to the ESV, but please follow along. Psalm 77, verse 1. For the choir director, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Salah. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever, and will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindnesses ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious, or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Salah. This psalm, Psalm 77, was written by Asaph, and this is the sixth of about a dozen psalms that we find in the Book of Psalms. You and I don't know the exact situation that gave occasion to this psalm. We think it may have been after the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom was on the precipice of the Babylonian invasion, but we don't know for sure. But you know what? We don't have to be for sure, and here's why. Though your situation may be different than Asaph's, our feelings and responses can be similar. Even though you don't walk through the same valley of the shadow of death as David does in Psalm 23, you and I face our own dilemmas, and we need to know that God is with us, just like David. One Bible teacher said this, Asaph's experiences are often our very own. And he quotes Spurgeon, where Spurgeon says, Some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use the same words as Asaph. No respite has been afforded us by the silence of the night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment, and our spirit in anguish. That's from Spurgeon. You know, there's another thing about this psalm, and this psalm is is a psalm of lament a psalm of lament. Lament is an important theme in the psalms because about a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. That means one out of every three psalms you read will be a song of lament. It's the largest category of themes in the psalms, lament. And it's where someone is expressing lament and he's moving towards hope. The biblical pattern of lament is where God meets grieving believers. We turn to the Lord. We share our honest complaints with him. We ask him to intercede, and then we trust in who he is to resolve the matter. You know, lament has fallen in hard times today in the church. As a hospice chaplain who so often comes alongside grieving families both before and after death, there's a tendency today in the church and the world to put a smiling face on every death. Instead of grieving, we have celebrations of life where grieving is sidestepped. And just as tears are a normal part of life, grieving is a normal part of life. But it's what we do with our grief as believers that really matters. Suffering and grief more than anything else can change our understanding of God. And if we trace the big picture of lament in Psalm 77, we see Asaph traverses from a focus on himself to a focus on God. And the turning point is verse 10. First ten verses, he sees God through the lens of his circumstances, and then the last half, he sees his circumstances through the lens of God. Or, another way of putting it, it's when his troubles are overshadowed by God. I'm sorry, when his troubles are, excuse me, I said that wrong. When his troubles overshadow God in the first half, he turns to when God's greatness overshadows his troubles in the second half. You see, it all depends on perspective, perspective. When our family was younger, we were on an overseas flight. We were missionaries on a transatlantic flight, something like 13 hours. We got on the plane. And in a short time, our children were very young. One of our children started, started vomiting. And we were asking for all the bags of all our neighbors in the seats. And three rows ahead of me was a veteran missionary who was retired in the same agency. He looked back and he said, Paul, this flight is 13 hours. He said, when I first started out, it took us three weeks of seasickness to get to our place. And I thought, that put it in perspective for me. I needed perspective. You know, this is 13 hours. Here's a man who faced three weeks of it, you know. And we need perspective as we go through life. And this psalm will help us perspective. I want us to see a perspective today that allows God to be God and us to be us God is the potter, you and I are the clay. Look at, let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, he says, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. There's something within a true believer that instinctively causes us to cry out to God when we're in trouble, and that's the first point of lament. In lament, we turn to God, and that takes faith. He says, my voice rises to God. And then he says, he will hear. And if I were to ask you, does God hear our prayers? A believer would say, yes, of course. But the trouble comes when you intellectually know this, but then it seems like he doesn't hear you. You and I know that God hears, but what do we do when it seems like he doesn't answer us? What do we do when it seems like the heavens are brass? We pray and all of a sudden it bounces back and there's there's Silence. What do we do when we pray and things only get worse, not better? What do we do when it seems like God is indifferent to us? See, the Bible portrays someone as God as someone who wants to answer us. In Luke chapter 11, we see the example of someone that goes to his neighbor and he knocks on his door and his neighbor says, "Don't bother me. The door has already been shut, my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything." And then and then in verse 8, it says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will give up, get up and give him as much as he needs. This is not a pagan. And he says, even someone that doesn't know the Lord, eventually he'll give in by your persistence. And the Bible presents God as someone who wants to answer us. He says, Bible says in the same verses, it says, keep praying, you know, knock, and it will be opened. But here's the question. What do we do when it seems like God doesn't want to answer? What do we do when our understanding or expectation of God doesn't meet what seems in the present? Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist had an expectation of God, Christ, as the Messiah that when the Messiah comes, he would vanquish all of Israel's enemies. Of course, he will in the second coming, not the first coming. John the Baptist is in prison. And he says, are you the one? (laughs) I mean, here he says, are you the one? He doubted who God was because what God was doing didn't match what he understood. Habakkuk said, you know, you're too pure to approve evil. Why do you allow the Babylonians to come in? He struggled with who God was. Jeremiah found himself in the Book of Lamentations you know he says this is just too much and that's the situation we find asaph is in verse 2 he says in the day of my trouble i sought the lord in the night my hand was stretched out without weariness my soul refused to be comforted and here we find another characteristic of lament asaph continues he continues to seek the lord even in his doubt he continues and even that is a mark of faith he still continues He's saying, I sought the Lord, but my soul just wasn't comforted. And it's so easy to miss this. He's still in his doubt. He's showing forth faith. It's when you stop that it becomes a concern. And notice he says, in the day of trouble, one man said, blessed be the storm that cast me upon the rock. But how do you and I view our days of trouble? James says, count it all joy. But how do we do that? Verse 2, Asaph refused to be comforted. It's all too often a scenario that a believer finds himself or herself in. But verse 2 illustrates it's not just the trial itself, but the struggle with God. Asaph says, I went to God, but my soul wasn't comforted. Did God not do what he should do? You see, in a trial, there might be physical pain, but there's also emotional pain. I've worked with veterans, and sometimes there's things that even a veteran will not tell their family. They're, they're silent. It's just too difficult to remember, and sometimes even the slightest similar occurrence will bring back a memory that is that is too frightening. There are times in life that we just don't want to revisit. But again, note the big picture. Asaph is bringing them to God. In verse three, he says this: When I remember God, then I'm disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Salah, and he just says, ah. you know, he just he just says it's just. Too much, and there are four of these salas in the psalm, and each and it indicates a pause. He stops right here at the end of verse three, and he pauses, and he it gets it's so bad he's just silent. What can you say? But he continues to go before God. In the big picture, he's still going to God. He's not going to sin to try to dull the pain. And there are many things that people can turn to to dull the pain, but Asaph turns to God. But notice that when he remembers God, he despairs. He despairs. It's very interesting. When you think of that, w- despairing because of God, it almost seems like an unchristian statement. Job, in Job 23 says this. It's very interesting. He says, therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence when I consider I'm terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart to faint, and, and to the Almighty he has, who has dismayed me. Job is dismayed by God. And you wonder, how can this be? That's where Asaph is. Job later on says, but I am not silenced by the darkness, not in deep gloom which covers me. Almost the same situation Asaph says. He despairs of God, but then he goes on to say, I'm, I am not silenced by the deep gloom. He's, he continued with God. He continued. Remember Habakkuk? Very similar. Almost, Habakkuk and Psalm 77 have so many parallels. Habakkuk's vexing problem was not as much with evil and injustice, but it was with God. Uh, turn, You might want to turn there. I just, I just want to call your attention to an uh, uh, important parallel. Habakkuk begins in chapter 1, verse 2, and says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? His trouble is what? With the Lord. i cry, crying, but you don't answer. Same thing as Asaph. And he says, I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contentions arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And you know what? He might have written that just with the circumstances that are happening here in this country. Justice comes out perverted. But his struggle is not with so much with justice. It's with God, who he says, I cry out, and you do nothing. And then God answers him. Look at verse 12. God answers him and says, I'm going to bring in your dreaded enemy, the Chaldeans, and he's going to, he's going to destroy Jerusalem. Then Habakkuk struggled with what God said he would do. He says, are you not from everlasting? In verse 12, are you not from everlasting? He said, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? First he struggled, God, you're not doing anything. Then God says, I'm going to bring in your enemies, and that's going to be your answer. And then Habakkuk says, Lord, how can you allow a wicked that's more, a nation that's more wicked than us to do that? So he struggles with God. It's more with God than the situation. But what did he do? He says, I'm going to, I'm going to, Answer. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell God, and I'm gonna wait for His answer. That's what. Hab- that's what Asaph did. He took his problems to God. Now. Asaph tried to seek God, and it didn't help in verses 1 to 3. Now he goes to the past in verses 4 and 6. It's when his comparisons regarding the past, that didn't help either. He continues to pour out his heart, and he says in verse 4, You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. It's almost like Job's friends. Remember, Job's friends came to him. The one thing they did right is for seven days, they didn't open their mouth. They just listened. So here... Asaph says, I can't speak. I take my promise to God. The problem isn't solved. I'm silenced. Have you ever been in a trial you couldn't sleep? Or maybe the trial took the breath out of you. Some situations you hear, and it's just like, you, it's like, what do you say? It's just horrific. And not only this, Asaph goes further, and he attempts to reconcile the present with the past. Look at verse 5. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. Sometimes we wish the old days would return. You know, but here's the thing. He's looking at the past through his circumstances. And maybe in the past he wasn't suffering. He can't reconcile what's happening now with what was happening in the past. He's comparing. How many of you, how many of us compare? We could say, well, you know, this was so nice then, but it's not nice now. Why is this happening? Or you compare yourself with someone else. Someone else on the other edge of the pew might say, he has an easy life. He doesn't have the troubles I have. Lord, wh- what's going on? It's not fair. This, you're not dealing with them the same way you with, are with us. Comparing is just is, it's not a way to solve the problem. And he's trying to compare the past with the present. And along with this introspection, and I call it preoccupied introspection, his thoughts, Asaph's thoughts lead him to some pointed questions. Look at verses 6 and 7. I, for 6, I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. Now notice what he says. I will remember. I will meditate. My spirit, even though this is the Old Testament, there's no thought of, of the idea where it says in, in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ. He's looking to himself. <laughs> I'm going to remember. I'm going to meditate. He's working hard in himself to solve the problem. In fact, let me just share a paraphrase from My utmost for His Highest from, by Oswald Chambers on 2 Corinthians 5.7, where it says, We walk by faith, not by sight. He says this, quote, If we continually try to bring back those exceptional moments of delight, it is a sign that it's not God we want. We are becoming obsessed with the moments when God did come, and we are insisting that he do it again. But God want, what God wants us to do is to walk by faith. And then comes our surprise, and we find ourselves exclaiming, why? He was here all the time, and I never knew it. Never live for those exceptional moments. They are surprises. These are not the standard of life. Maybe to put it in a biblical perspective, we're not always living on the mountaintop. We have valleys, right? At the same time, when you're in a valley, realize your whole life is in a valley, the Lord will take you out. You know, you have to realize both are a part of life. In a sense, this may be Asaph's predicament. He's longing more for the days in the past than he's longing for God himself. Now, eventually, Asaph will close the gap, but he continues further. He's, he, number one, he doesn't understand why God doesn't help. Number two, he doesn't understand why God did so much in the past and not now. But now, he becomes more direct we see when his understanding of God does not match his circumstances. And he asks six pointed questions. He says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindnesses ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? He asks six rhetorical questions. And the presumed answer to all six is no. And before we look a little closer, I need to frame the context. Some might say it's wrong to question God. One commentator says, the situation is troubling enough, but when God seems not to care, it's unbearable. This is unbearable for him. In fact, if one was to say it's wrong to question God, you would be contradicting many people in the Bible. Scripture in many places has a godly person asking God why. Scripture in many places has a godly person asking how long. Let me clarify. It's one thing to murmur and complain to God like the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt. It's altogether a different thing to struggle with God and to say why God doesn't seem to act according to his character we have to consider the context the context that if there's one thing you remember about interpretation is context context there are times when suffering results in questions and feelings not based on truth but the feelings feel true to us and just like turning to god in the ment is faith so to telling god how you feel can also be an act of faith The questions here are very different than the spirit that we find in Malachi, where the questions arise out of a self-confident, unholy, presumptuous manner. Here, the questions come out of a severe trial. James Montgomery Boyce says this about spiritual questions. It is better to ask them than not to ask them, because asking questions sharpens the issue and pushes us towards the right, positive response. Alexander McLaren, who is one of the finest British Preacher says this, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it's made articulate. Consider how Jeremiah questions God. Why do you forget us forever? Lamentations 520. Or Jeremiah 419, have you completely rejected Judah? Why have you stricken us? David, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you reject me forever? The sons of Korah, Psalm 44, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction? Asaph, the same psalmist in Psalm 74 says, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Isaiah says this, will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? In Isaiah 64. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? treacherously. These are questions arriving from a believer's distraught heart, not from a pompous heart challenging God. These are sincere questions that the writers of scripture cannot harmonize with how they understand the character of God and what they see. You see, questions out of a right heart want to understand God. They want to know God better and why he doesn't seem to be who he is. And Asaph takes his concern to God. That's a big picture. What does he do with it? He takes it to God. Now notice these words. Reject forever, never, cease forever, end forever. Has God forgotten? Has God withdrawn? We know that God's promises endure forever. We know that God doesn't forget to be gracious, that he's a gracious and compassionate God. How could someone think about this about God? You wonder. You know, but it's not far from home. How many of you husbands, how many of you wives have ever said to your spouse, Why do you always, you can fill in the blank? Or, Why do you never? You know, it's, it's, we say those things. And we know intrinsically that our wife or husband does not always do this. We say these things because our focus is on ourselves, our focus is on our hurt, our focus is on our dashed expectations. We say these things in anger when anger might control us, and we fail to see the big picture. We know our spouse doesn't always isn't always that way, but our words betray our heart. But here's the hard part. We might say these things about our spouse, but about God? How can this be? How can the psalmist do that? Well, look at the context. The psalmist is so focused on his hurt that he fails to see God in all he is. And the psalmist continues to spiral downward. He continues to look on all these things, and God doesn't give him comfort. And that's a, not an uncommon dilemma in a believer's life. But I want you to see that it has a predictable cause and a predictable solution. Let me give you an example. The doctrine of sovereignty is a comforting truth about God, but also it can be a struggle. There are times when the thought of sovereignty might not be comforting. It's like It goes like this. Lord, I know you caused this, I know you orchestrated this, but what's next? If you orchestrated this, how can I be sure next time it won't be as hard as this? And the dilemma is understanding God. But now we come to verse 10, and verse 10 we see a change. Verse 10 we see a change. It's, a, it's like a pivot. It changes. And we read this. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Now in the Hebrew, this is a very difficult verse to translate. Um, If you look at your margin in the ESV, it says this. Um, Well, actually, in in the main text, it says this. Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Most of the conservative commentators render the verse similar to what your footnote says. Your footnote says this, "This is my grief that the right hand of most high has changed." I like the footnote much better than what the text says and for many reasons. I'll just give you two. One, the Hebrew here is cons- that the rendering of the footnote is consistent with the context. It shows his change in mind and it shows what he's struggling with. But the other reason why I prefer the footnote is it's consistent with the thinking of other scriptures. For example, Psalm 31, the writer says, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard my voice. Again, in his alarm, he concluded God couldn't hear him. Psalm 116, 11, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. So again, the thought is here, here it's his grief, and in his grief he concluded that. Um, That, to me, seems to be most consistent with the flow of Scripture. You and I know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in the trial, when your eyes are glazed with tears, and when they're red from sleepless nights, it's very hard to realize that God has not changed. And listen to what David says. Psalm 139, verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. David realizes his fear. If I say, the darkness will overwhelm me. David realizes that we all have this tendency to say, I'm overwhelmed by the darkness. But David looks at it from God's perspective. He says, well, to God, if it's dark to me, to God, Darkness and light are the same. And so he's he's looking at it from God's perspective. And that's what I want you to see in the second half of the psalm. What is God's vantage point? David in the valley is dark, but he, he says, how does God see it? And David rests in a correct understanding of who God is. Jeremiah did the same thing in the book of Lamentations. Remember Lamentations, Jeremiah is viewing the, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. It was pitiful. And in verse 18, he says, my strength has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Jeremiah's hope perished. He was looking over and over and over and over on all the destruction that happened. We have that tendency. That's what Asaph did. But then he says in verse 21, there's a change, just like Asaph. He says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. All of a sudden, Jeremiah changes his tone from the destruction, and he says, this I recall to mind. And I want you to see that's exactly what Asaph does. And that's what happens in depression. We become so preoccupied, we're only thinking on this, and it takes effort to change what you're thinking about. By faith, Jeremiah looks to the Lord's character, and he recalls his loving kindness and his faithfulness. Listen to this, and I think if if you This is one thing that I hope that you will not forget. There's a well-known biblical counselor who did a survey of his counselees that came out of depression. He asked them, what was the one thing you did that made a difference? What was the one thing you did when all of a sudden things changed? And it's very, very instructive. There's a whole page of things. But one thing jumped out of the page. One person said this, when I stopped listening to my soul and I started speaking to my soul. And I'll say that again because it's biblical advice. He said, my depression changed when I stopped listening to my soul and I started speaking to my soul. This is what happened to Asaph in verse 10. He stopped listening to his soul. Verse 10, he says, it's my grief. He said, it's, it's me. And then he says... And then he turns to God, and he says, "And he spoke truth to his soul, That's where the effort is to stop spiraling around and to tell your soul, soul, the Lord is in control. that's that's what he did. Um, 40 years ago, I listened to a sermon on Philippians 4 where the preacher said this statement, Disappointment is nothing else but self-preoccupation. Self-preoccupation. That's exactly what, what Asaph was. Look at the first half. I'm going to just share, the, again, go back to the forest. Look at verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, my hand, my soul, my spirit. I cannot speak, my heart, my spirit. You have so many my's. In fact, one person says there's 21 first-person references in the first half and only 12 references to God. Look at the second half. It's completely contrasted. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord, your wonders of, of old, your work, your deeds, your way, your strength, your people, your power. It's completely switched. In the second half, you have you have you have like 26 references to god and only 7 to himself it's completely different so the big picture is he went from me and he goes to god again that's that's what he does and, and so in the second half he's seeing god for who he is very similar to philippians chapter 4 6 and 7 be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer Asaph, he's anxious for anything, but what does he do? He turns to God. It's precisely what he does in verse 10. He said it's his grief, his perspective that had clouded God. And so then he goes on verse 11 and he, and he sees his circumstances through the lens of God's character. And he focuses in 11 to 15 on God himself and his providences. He, he says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. He told his heart. He spoke to his heart instead of letting his soul speak to him. He says, I'm going to make two resolutions. I'm going to revive my memory. I'm going to remember. I will meditate on all your work. Um, it, it takes effort to do that. Let me just give one short example. In Genesis 35, we have a tragedy where Jacob was going to Bethel with his wife, um, with, his, with his wife, um, and Rachel gives birth. And as she gives birth, she dies. At the last gasp, she calls her son. Do you remember what she called her son? Benoni. Do you remember what Benoni means? Son of my sorrow. You, you, it's a pitiful circumstance. In the very next verse, you see Jacob called him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand. How how could Jacob all of a sudden say, son of my right hand, when his wife just called him son of my sorrow? Of course he was sorrowful. The reason is right before that, God gave Jacob a promise. Again, he says your, your progeny would be as, as many as the sand on the seashore. Jacob saw God rightly. He saw God's promises, and he applied it to himself. That's what enabled him to even change the name of his son. So. So as we continue, that's what Asaph does. He says, I will reflect on all you've done, meditate on your actions. Reflect, meditate, muse. The subject is what? The works of God. It's almost like he doesn't want to allow the pervasive thinking of woe is me, but he's determined to think on the works of God. And, and what, is he, what is the focus here? The focus is the exodus, the work of God involved in bringing his people out of Egypt look at verses 13 and 15. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made your, knowing your strength among the peoples, you have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. God himself becomes a focus. He's not comparing it, it's God himself. And notice that he says your. Your way, O oh God, is holy. One writer says in this in this second half there are five names of God. You have Elohim, Adonai, El, Elion, and Yah. And if there was more time, we could link how the name of God and His character is specific to helping to helping Asaph understand who God is. But don't overlook the description. He says, "Your way, O oh God, is holy," and holy in the Bible has the idea of separateness, and it has the idea of of being sanctified or right. And here, Asaph is describing the ways of God as being right. In the midst of a trial where he can't resolve it, he says, God, I know your way is holy. You know, oftentimes in a trial, you and I would say, well, Lord, I think it's better if you do it this way, or if you spared us, or if you took away this infirmity immediately. We question God. But the psalmist reminds us that God's ways are set apart. Isaiah says this, "My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Lord's ways are beyond what you and I might conceive. He knows the future, we don't." One pastor put it this way: "God is eternal and holy and has ruled since the beginning of time without a single failure in judgment. What is our part? How do we respond to that? He says our part is to believe that he will deal with us consistent with those ways, consistent with his holiness. That's how we respond to the Lord by faith. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Proverbs says, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That's our responsibility. He's the God who works wonders. Now notice in verse 15, he says, you have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. It's something I want you to note here that many times in the Bible, when we see the word Jacob and Joseph, it's not referring singular to those people, but it's referring to the progeny, the people of them, the greater set of them. Um, And the other thing here is that this psalm has not only a personal focus, but a national focus. He's speaking of God's holy way in redeeming Israel. You and I can also look back to the cross. God redeemed, if you know the Lord, you know the Lord. But he's redeemed us, all of us uh, that know him. And notice where even in, in Malachi, God says to Israel, Esau, I hated. Jacob, I loved. And even there, it's not a relative comparison, but he's talking about the progeny of Esau and Jacob. The progeny of Esau is Edom. In the book of Obadiah, we see that God hates Edom. And but he loves Israel. And you and I can look back to the cross and and realize that Christ died for us. We see in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We have the argument from the greater to the lesser. Israel could look back to the Exodus when God took Israel out of Egypt. That was their defining moment when they became a nation. They could see God's love. They could see God's power. You and I can also look back to the cross. That's where God's power power is preeminently um, displayed. It's the same argument here. God displays his power And then he takes that further in verses 16 to 20. He considers the effects of God's redemptive power. And he does it from the perspective of water. It's very interesting. Look at verses 16. Read with me. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron." So here, he goes further, and he gives the example of Exodus in terms of the water, how God opened the Red Sea. He allowed Israel to pass through. Israel couldn't go forward, they couldn't go backward, and God did a miracle. He opened up the Red Sea, and their enemies perished. And you might wonder, what, what's the connection to that? description in this psalm. Maybe to help, it's the very same thing that we find in Habakkuk. Habakkuk was in a similar dilemma as Asaph. He couldn't reconcile with what he knew about God with the impending invasion. In chapter 3 of Habakkuk, Habakkuk had a theophany. And he talks about, again, the exodus. He says, did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers? they went away at the light of your arrows, the radiance of your gleaming spear. He has a vision of the power of God in the Exodus. And at the end of that, Habakkuk says, I will exalt in the Lord. He said, even if the flock will be cut off from the fold and there's no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. Habakkuk saw the power of God and he Knew that he could rest in God's power. How did Habakkuk go from fear to faith? It was a renewed understanding of God's power. And when we look at this, when we read this psalm, you say, How can that help me? How can it help me to understand God's power? Number one, it takes your eyes off yourself. Number two, it re- you realize God is in control. I mean, it's like, it's the same way God answered Job. At the end of Job, God said, Job, where were you when I created the heavens and earth? Where were you when I made the ocean and I told the ocean, stop here and don't go farther? Can you do that? Job said, no. Job, can you grab the crocodile in your arms? No, I can't do that. Three chapters, question after question after question, Job realized, God, you're all powerful. I rest my case. That's exactly what happens to Asaph here. Asaph comes to a conclusion of the power of God as seen through the waters, and he says, God, you're all powerful. Therefore, in my situation, I know that you can, can handle it. You know, it's, it, this is not so distant. I, when I was in Budapest, Hungary, some 35 years ago, I was, at, uh, I was at the Historical Museum, and they had a mummy there. They had a mummy there that dated roughly f- almost from the time of Abraham. And I looked at that mummy, and it's almost like 2,500 years. It was right before my eyes. And you see this time compressed in this right before your eyes. You wonder, it just realize how, how God is from eternity to eternity. But let me bring it home a little bit closer. Asaph recognizes the national redemption of Israel at the Exodus. I don't know if you know this, but this year is the 75th year since Israel became a nation. Israel became a nation in 1949, and there are many articles that talk about how when Israel became a nation, the astounding, overwhelming odds that they faced in the battles of the Six-Day War, they were outnumbered massively, and how it was like a miracle of how some of the, of how Israel overcame that. When you look at that, And by the way, that's a fulfillment of prophecy where where we read that Israel will come back into the country. Never before has any country in the world, after 2,000 years, ever gotten their land back and their language back. So the fact that Israel is a nation now is very significant. But you look at the miracles that happened then. That was just a few years ago, 1949. You, you realize that God can do the impossible. You focus on that, and it takes your eyes off your impossible self where God doesn't answer. That's, that's how this works. And you say, that's how it works for me. It, It caused me to take my eyes off myself, it caused me to look to the Lord, it caused me to realize that the Lord, he's God, he can vanquish all his enemies, and it caused me to realize that nothing, nothing, nothing at all can thwart the purposes of God. That's what what helped Asaph here. And you sigh, just like here, Salah. O Lord, you're great, I submit to you. Now notice, Notice that he says, your way was in the sea, your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. That's so That's so often the way of God in a trial. We don't know where God is leading us. We don't know when, but we do know. You and I know the final outcome, glory, eventually, but we don't know what happens between glory and now. We don't know. You know, but we can rest in God's ability to see us through. Um, as Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 1, he has delivered us, and he will deliver us again. That's the argument. He has delivered us, and he will deliver us again. And we can't see God. Back in 1987, I was teaching in a hidden church camp behind the Iron Curtain, and the leader of this camp was a former elect- electrical engineer. Not former, that was his profession. And of course, being in Eastern Europe where God is not avowed, I asked him, how did you come to know the Lord? He's an electrical engineer. And he told me he couldn't see electricity, but he could see the effects of electricity. And he pondered that with scripture. And he realized, you know, I can't see God directly, you know, the communism says there's no God, but I can see the works of God. Even as Psalm 19 says, creation speaks, but it has, no, it has no words. You see the effects of God. And that was a stepping stone to him coming to know Christ. We can't see God, but we can see the effects of God. And that's what Asaph says. I couldn't see your footprints, but you were in the water. I saw what you did. And listen to this, Peter says this, even though you don't see him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the picture and the walk of faith of a believer. We don't see him, but we love him. We don't see him work the way we want to in our trials, but we walk by faith. And so the way and the water was not clear, but they went through. And notice in verse 20, he says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Notice in verse 10, he says, the hand of God, the right hand of God. And then here he says, the hand of Moses. You know, Isaiah says, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? And who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? See, again, it's God who is working through Moses. God has his people. And the psalm sort of ends there. What can we add to <laughs> You know, the Lord took out Israel, what more is there to say? We need to trust him. And, and as the psalm says, my times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. As, ben, as Jacob called his son, son of my right hand. So in conclusion, let me just end with a few things, just a few things that might summarize what we, what we went over. How should Asaph and his experience in Psalm 77, how can that make a difference when you and I are in a trial? First of all, speak to your soul. Do not listen to your soul. Remember verse 10, I said, it's my grief that the right hand of the Lord has changed. And what did he do? He determined, he said in verse 11, I shall remember. So that's the one principle. Second principle is, do not be preoccupied with self. Rather, focus on God himself. Rather, focus on God himself. Again, we see this pattern, the whole, this whole psalm. That was a pattern. First half was himself. The second half was God. Philippians says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Number three, continue in prayer with the Lord. Do not give up. The psalmist in Psalm 77 didn't stop taking his lament to God when God didn't make sense to him. He continued to go to the Lord. And that's God's grace, God's grace. And I can assure you, God is faithful. You will come out on the other side because of his faithfulness. Look at James chapter 5. As an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. One pastor said this, he said, Biblical faith is more than just believing God is in control. It believes God is doing what is right and best, even when we don't understand. Asaph continued going to the Lord even when he didn't understand. Fourthly, seek the fellowship of other believers. Verse 15, Asaph says, You have by your power redeemed your people. The sons of Jacob and Joseph. And I don't want you to miss the big picture. The big picture is Asaph was in a trial. He wrote this, and it encourages countless thousands of believers. I mean, he went through a trial, and we can benefit from his struggle with the Lord and how he looked to the Lord. What does Paul say in Corinthians? He said he says, um, he, he says in Corinthians, "The God of all comfort comforts you." In all your affliction, why? So that you can comfort others. That's the principle we see here. Asaph drew a comfort from God, and we are the beneficiaries of it. Look at the fifth one. Even if you doubt, God is still there. Remember in verse Psalm 77, verse 19, your footprints may not be known. The ways of God are not our ways. We walk by faith, not by sight. And And one pastor put it this way. When we're perplexed, we are responsible to adopt a posture of hopeful waiting for God's redemption of the situation. And one way we do this, we look back to our redemption. Israel looked back to the Exodus. We look back to the cross. One man said, it's unthinkable to look at the cross and accuse God of not loving you. You can't do that. At the cross, we see his love. Uh, Sixthly. Um, are you longing more for the past than for God himself? Remember this pattern, pattern in, in Asaph. Verse 5 he says, I've considered the days of old. But then in verse 13, he longed for God. He said, Your way, is, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like, like our God. Let me, let me um, close with this. Many of you know Fanny Crosby. She was blinded either at the age of six months, either by a physician's mistake or possibly a congenital um, defect. But she wrote many of our favorite hymns. And in fact, some people say she wrote between 5,000 and 9,000 hymns. In fact, she was so prolific that sometimes she used a pen name, so when you look in the hymnal, you wouldn't see her name so much. Um, And she had a double case of not seeing. She had a trial. And you struggle to see God, but then she didn't have her eyes. She couldn't see. Yet in the hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, she proclaims her faith. And the first stanza goes like this. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? And if, I, if, I was, uh, if my vocals were very good, I'd sing that, but I, I can't. Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know, whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know, whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Amen. Amen. Will you pray? Father, you are the God who works wonders, you're the shepherd who leads us. You're the shepherd who's with us in the valley, and you're the shepherd who follows us. And we ask you for the grace to endure when the trial that you bring clouds our eyes and you are obscured. But yet, Father, our faith lives. May you show yourself faithful, for we know whatever befalls us, and you do all things well. And we ask this in the name of Christ, amen.